The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Eleven bestsellers in eleven years and very profitable film sales. Now, on the face of it, that looks like unmixed success, but some of the press notices haven't been all that glowing. Um, they've accused you of being sadistic and too much sex. Taking the charge of sadism first, your, your torture scenes are pretty beastly in some of the books. Well, I don't know how many of them you've read, but, um, of course, they're nothing to what they really are in real life. And I think the old days of the hero getting a crack over the head with a cricket stump have rather gone out. I mean, we all have become considerably wiser since the last war. And I've tried to bring verisimilitude into these books, and um, it's certainly true that, that um, the critics have occasionally found them uh, pretty strong meat. Yes. What effect do you think these scenes have on, on, on the average reader? Are they going to give him unhealthy ideas, or is this vicarious violence a harmless way of sublimating aggressive tendencies? Well, I think that's a way of putting it, uh, but I was brought up on what we used to call fourpenny horrors, and um, I can't remember that any of the excitements ever did me any harm. Um, all history is sex and violence, mm. and I think it's ridiculous to go on writing thrillers in the old Bulldog Drummond, John Buchan uh, way, when life has uh, come uh, so fast past us. Yes, well, sex, Bond takes his sex when he finds it almost as casually as he takes a drink. Well, he has uh, one girl per book, approximately, and, and that's one a year. I think that's, uh, he's a bachelor, <laughs> and he moves around the world pretty rapidly, and um, I don't see any great harm in that myself. Uh, he's unusually fortunate in meeting these lovely and cooperative girls. Yes, I envy him. He envies him. That's author Ian Fleming talking about the most famous spy in the world, the one he created on the page, but who has long since transcended his creator. He's an easy man to envy. This uber spy with his sophisticated glamour, his ease with danger, his sense of purpose, and his limitless reservoirs of cool. Traipsing through exotic locales, fortified by gadgets, knowing secrets, saving the day and usually the planet, peeling off the tuxedo and diving into the ocean, or the entangling limbs of a lover. Or not just a lover, but a wild parade of them. Martinis, shaken and not stirred, ordered up by a man who sometimes doesn't give a damn. Fleming's creation went from best-selling books to blockbuster movies to a franchise-slash-archetype Faster than you can say. Bond. James Bond. Ian Fleming today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Missed my cue there, drinking a sip of coffee. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I hope you are all doing well. And I'm glad you found us here at the History of Literature, which has been the number one books contest. Contest. 
the number one books podcast in, yes, we have another country we're adding to the list. And no, it's not Italy where we peaked at number two. My beloved adopted country has forsaken me, at least for now. Maybe they're waiting for more Dante, like everyone else, sighing and gesticulating. Madai, Jack Wilson. Dove Dante? Dove? Is that the cry of a nation? The number one we are celebrating today is Algeria. Thank you, Algeria, for pushing us to the top of the charts, making your country the fifth number one that we are thanking after Norway, Croatia, the Bahamas, and Lithuania. We truly appreciate your support there in Algeria and around the world. And if you would like your country to be thanked in person by your humble podcaster, it's easy enough. Just get a few million of your fellow compatriots to download our show today, if possible, or at least by the end of the day tomorrow. Grazie mille. Great show today, James Bond and Ian Fleming. He was a bit like James Bond, in fact, maybe a lot like him. He would say, oh, everyone thinks I'm James Bond, but I'm not, of course. And yes, of course, that's true. But when you compare his life with, say, mine, it's hard not to think he was closer to James Bond than he was to Jack Wilson. We will get into all of that. We'll just we'll see just how much traveling and spying and high living Mr. Fleming actually did. But first, we're going to have a different story. The Black James Bond. And no, I'm not talking about the current casting questions and Idris Elba or whomever whomever else they might choose for the next James Bond or the one after that. I'm talking about 1969. An American, a Cold War spy from Chicago. It's the story of a best-selling novel and the movie that the government didn't want you to see. We'll have that story after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. (laughs) 
How about this as a plot for a novel or film? It's the 1960s, and a white liberal senator is in the re-election fight of his life. If only he could ignite the passion of the black community, he might be able to increase their voting turnout and win his election. He finds an issue. The Central Intelligence Agency has no black officers, so he starts criticizing them loudly and publicly until they cave and agree to bring in a class of black intelligence officers. Only one man makes it through the rigorous training process. They give him a job consistent with the custom in those days. They give him a job sitting by the door in order to proudly show everyone who comes in that they have a racially integrated staff. But it's a good spot for him strategically. He's close to the director, and he sees and hears a lot. He learns. And then it turns out that he himself is undercover. When he leaves the CIA, he returns to Chicago and starts organizing a black nationalist movement using the CIA's own tactics to prepare his black nationalist recruits for guerrilla-style warfare on the streets of Chicago and beyond. Sound like a good thriller? A book you'd buy? and maybe one that the government wouldn't want published, all that is true of the book written by Sam Greenlee, who was in fact one of the first black agents in the U.S. Information Agency, where he served from 1957 to 1965. He was undercover in a way, though not subversive. He was a novelist. And when he got out of the agency, he always hated D.C., and left after he heard the State Department was shutting down a tour by Duke Ellington. When he left the agency, he didn't organize a race war, but he wrote a novel that critics fretted might start one. The Spook Who Sat by the Door, it was called with a triple entendre in the title. Spook, the racial slur. Spook, the slang word for spy. And according to Greenlee, Spook, the specter of black-armed uprising that has haunted white imaginations for centuries. It was the last of these that worried publishers. Forty publishers in the United States turned the book down. A British publisher finally brought it out in the UK, where it received 100 reviews and was a bestseller. Its success across the pond emboldened a U.S. publisher, to take a chance on it, but the reviews, when a publication even dared to review it at all, were quick to note that no one should take it too seriously. Nervous laugh. Do not riot, the reviewers said. Please. If the idea of this happening makes you pale, wrote the Chicago Sun-Times reviewer, you are probably pale to begin with. With a tepid response from the marketing machine, the book did not do as well in the United States, but it was made into a film. Initial audiences loved it. It had a score by Herbie Hancock, a friend of Greenlee's from the south side of Chicago, and which we heard at the beginning of this segment. And it has this killer plot. A CIA agent turns his training tactics against the CIA. Hello, Jason Bourne. But the movie was met with fear. After some early opening success, theater after theater declined to show the picture. According to Greenlee, theater managers had told him 
that they were dropping his film after visits from the FBI. And so, David Freeman, the protagonist of the novel and film, a near contemporary of Fleming's character, James Bond, the American version, one with an X to grind against actual American injustice instead of a made-up organization of international supervillains, became the hero of a book that was hard to buy and a film that was almost impossible to see, but not one that disappeared altogether. In a final bit of subterfuge, the director apparently stored the negative in a film can with a different label to make sure that it wasn't seized and destroyed. The movie was rediscovered years later and played to audiences in the 1990s. It was brought out on DVD in the 21st century and has been turned into a series on FX, which, as far as I can tell, has been delayed by the pandemic but hasn't been canceled. A bit of history now, the movie that almost wasn't, and the movie that almost was, depending on your point of view. Sam Greenlee, retired spy, novelist, moved to Spain and wrote poems and novels and plays. He had some small successes afterwards, but none of them as big, as important, as controversial, or as erased as the spook who sat by the door. Ian Fleming, after this. Born in 1908, Ian Fleming always wanted to be a writer, not an author, not someone in what he routinely called the Shakespeare stakes, a writer, meaning someone without literary ambition, someone who didn't write for the head and heart. I write for the area between the solar plexus and the upper thigh, he said. I write for money. I write for pleasure. What did he want readers to take from his books? He wanted them to turn the page. We can see this early on. When he was a schoolboy, he wrote thrilling stories for his classmates. He sold them and made money. In the earliest one that's been found, maybe the first one he wrote, the story begins with a man going to get his gun and shooting himself. Fleming was still a teenager. When he wrote it later, he would add sex. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang, was how he described his books. A writer a writer. He tried a few different careers, but whenever he did well, meaning he didn't get kicked out or get fired or get so bored that he quit, you see writing of some kind at the heart. He was a successful journalist. In the war, as an intelligence officer, he was encouraged to make stuff up, invent wild schemes. We'll discuss those later. After the war, he announced he was going to have a place in Jamaica and swim in the ocean and walk on the beach and write books. And eventually, that's what he did. In the place he purchased and named Goldeneye. This wasn't his reward for writing Bond books. It was where he wrote all of them, including the first one. A writer. Every year, he went to Jamaica in the winter and spent a couple of months writing a Bond book three hours in the morning, an hour in the evening. He never looked back, 
or reread what he'd written. The draft took a couple of months, then he'd spend the rest of the year revising, preparing the cover, doing publicity, whatever else needed to be done on this book or one of the previous. As December approached, he'd start to feel the dread. Can he do it again? Can he come up with whatever Bond needs to do? Will he get it done? And he did. Twelve or so books in twelve or so years. The only other novel of note was the children's book, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. He traded in the Kiss Kiss for Chitty Chitty. And that book was successful, too. Why? We will talk about his style of writing, his technique, his formula for success. It's easy to say, well, sure, with Bond, we know what it is. It's sex and spies and fantastical plots. But if it were that easy, there would be a thousand Ian Flemings. And there's probably something more like 10 people who've had that kind of success. Maybe the number is even smaller. When you count the films, I think you would have to say that Fleming is the most successful creator of a fictional spy in history. He had a lineage, Eric Ambler, John Buchan, Graham Greene, Joseph Conrad, Somerset Maugham. He did not invent the genre, and it's hard to say that he perfected it. But did he fulfill his goal of getting rich from his writing, of pleasing himself and an audience, it's hard to argue otherwise. Ian Fleming was born into money. His grandfather was a self-made Scotsman who started life as a clerk, making a paltry salary, and eventually opened up his own bank. Fleming's father, Valentine Fleming, was a member of Parliament who married a great beauty, Eve, who was herself from a well-to-do family, the Roses, aristocratic, upper-crust, the sort of family where Eve could be expected to be a socialite and party-giver, and she was. She was blue-blooded and well-connected. Valentine was rich. When he died in World War I, he left four sons without a father, including young Ian, who was still only eight, a week or so from turning nine. Later, his character James Bond would be orphaned at eleven. Eve inherited the Valentine Fleming estate. The terms of the trust were such that if she remarried, she would lose the money, so she did not remarry, even though she had a serious relationship with the painter Augustus John. The two of them had a daughter who became a cellist. Already you start to see the patterns of Fleming's life. Later, he would say, I'm not Bond, people want me to be him, but I wasn't really Bond, all he... All he really means by that is he wasn't strapped down to some death machine while a supervillain who wanted to destroy the planet cackled away in the corner. 90% of Bond was Fleming. Things he'd done, places he'd seen, food he'd eaten, people he'd known. That's Fleming's own estimation, the 90%. He had money and he was well-connected. When his father died, Winston Churchill wrote the obituary. When his mother took a lover, it was Augustus John. Later in life, Fleming's wife Anne cheated on him with Hugh Gateskill, the leader of the Labor Party. These are the sorts of circles in which Ian Fleming traveled. But we've gotten ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to Ian as a child. Thanks to his family position, he was enrolled in top schools, where, like all good British boys of his era, he endured the hell of brutal bullies and sadistic schoolmasters. It's really pretty incredible in retrospect how much of this was just part of life, how fathers endured it and then sent their sons into it. And it was the creme de la creme who went through it. 
Fleming was no exception. He sort of did what you'd expect of the future James Bond creator. He was an indifferent student, easily bored. He was great at athletics and showed a talent for writing potboilers. Even at a place like Eton College, he stood out for his flamboyance. His housemaster didn't like his hair oil or the fact that he had a car or his serial relationships with women. Too slick, too posh, too fast. The housemaster talked Eve into pulling her son Ian from school and putting him in a military college, preparing him for a more distinguished career, as he and Eve saw it. Ian didn't last a year. He caught gonorrhea and dropped out. This was 1927, the period in between the wars. His mother now thought she'd try getting him into the foreign office, and so he went to a private school in Austria, where he learned three languages and met a few spies— he also had some affairs there. Women always seemed drawn to Ian Fleming all of his life, and he got engaged to a woman there that he met there named Monique. He managed to pass the Foreign Service exam, but didn't get an offer of employment. Instead, his mother pulled a few strings and got him a job as an international correspondent for Reuters News Agency. This sent him around the world, including a trip to Moscow, where he tried to interview Stalin. Stalin, the premier, didn't make it to the interview, but sent a note with his regrets. Money was becoming an issue for Ian Fleming now. He was used to high living. He liked having money and spending it, but he was mostly dependent on his mother and her fortune for it. He wrote a letter to Reuters, to his bosses there, asking for his salary to be doubled. Why not? Please double my salary. He said, he said this profession is more than just a hobby requires spending money to maintain a certain lifestyle in order to be successful. Well, the request didn't work. And he was engaged now to Monique, and he needed money. So he tried becoming a banker for a while, and a stockbroker after that. He flopped at both. His mother said, go ahead and marry Monique if you want, but if you do, I'm cutting you off. And he said, who needs Monique? A few years later, he began having an affair with a woman named Anne Charteris, who was married to a baron. She was also having an affair with the heir to Lord Rothermere, who owned a newspaper, the Daily Mail. This is 1939 now. Fleming is basically a flop at everything but life, and he's not necessarily doing so well at that. Not for someone in his 30s. No career, a successful run as a journalist in his past, still dependent on his family money, but not in control of much of it. But everything was about to change. War broke out, and his mother wrote some letters, and he wound up hired by Admiral John Godfrey to be his personal assistant. Godfrey happened to be the director of naval intelligence. He liked Ian, liked his personality and his creativity, and he put Ian to work in a famous room full of spies who were not told each other's names. Ian was known as 17F. Later, he used a similar coding system for 007, which meant that Bond had the license to kill. He also gave Bond the rank that he himself held, commander. During these years, Fleming was introduced to Q Branch and all the spycraft spy gadgetry that they were making there, like a shaving brush with a handle that unscrewed, revealing a secret compartment with a map and a tiny compass, perfect for spies caught behind enemy lines and needing to make their way across borders. 
He saw weapons concealed in attache cases and shoes and tips of umbrellas, and he heard the stories of people who were tasked with using them. And then, in a kind of miracle of fate, he himself was tasked by Godfrey to imagine schemes that could be used to trick the Germans. As in, fake a German air crash in order to get a German rescue boat to come and save the Germans inside, and then to steal their code machine. Or, another Fleming scheme, plant fake papers and plans on a British corpse and have it found by the enemy. We can use a corpse from the naval hospital, he apparently wrote, but of course it will have to be a fresh one. Fleming took place in some actual plots as well, not as a spy, but as a director of operations leading from behind. He was successful and could claim enough success to feel proud about his wartime service. He also had his eye on life after the war. I'm going to write the best spy novel that has ever been written, he used to say. The war also took him to Jamaica for an intelligence summit. While there, he fell in love with the place. He bought a house, a fancy estate for someone like me and probably you. But a modest house, apparently. Noel Coward, who lived nearby and was a friend, said the place was the house was a shack and had uncomfortable beds. It was good enough for Prime Minister Anthony Eden, I suppose. When he got sick, Fleming offered him Goldeneye to help him rest and recover. But I'm a little bit of my ahead of myself now. I forgot to mention that Ian, after the war, returned to his job as a journalist, which he did much of the year. He arranged to get two or three months off to spend in Jamaica, and eventually, that's the time period and the place when and where he would write the Bond books. He also planned to get married. At first, he wanted to remain a bachelor, but when Anne Charteris got divorced and became pregnant with Fleming's child, the two got engaged. Fleming was terrified of marriage, you might say, or he intensely wanted a distraction or some kind of relief from the duties of marriage and the forthcoming duties of parenting. And besides, he needed an income, of course, so he plunged into writing his novel, the one he'd been talking about writing for years. He was in his 40s now. It was 1952. The book was called Casino Royale, and it featured a character with the dullest name that Fleming could think of. He found it on the cover of a guide to birds that he had there in Jamaica at Goldeneye, Birds of the West Indies, by the American ornithologist James Bond. I wanted Bond to be an extremely dull, uninteresting man to whom things happened, he later said. I wanted him to be a blunt instrument. When I was casting around for a name for my protagonist, I thought, by God, that, James Bond, is the dullest name I ever heard. Can we see that today? James Bond, is that a dull name? It's kind of a sexy name now, isn't it? Masculine, with a whiff of sophistication, Rugged, the perfect name for a spy, a blue-chip name, suggestive of money and finance. It's hard to remember a time when James Bond was supposed to be a dull functionary to whom interesting things happened. Fleming himself didn't view his character as heroic. In a conversation with Raymond Chandler, he said, quote, Your hero, Philip Marlowe, is a real hero. He behaves in a heroic fashion. 
My leading character, James Bond, I never intended to be a hero. I intended him to be a sort of blank instrument wielded by a government department who would get into bizarre, fantastic situations and more or less shoot his way out of them. Get out of them one way or another. End quote. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. In other words, he wanted Bond to look like Hoagie Carmichael. We debate whether Daniel freaking Craig is attractive enough to play him. But there's a lot about Bond that it's hard to see now. The books and movies have been so successful and so imitated. It's hard to put ourselves back in that moment before it all began. It's hard not to see Sean Connery when we think of Bond. It's hard not to hear Pierce Brosnan or Daniel Craig or Roger Moore or think of those grand explosions or high-speed chases on the ski slopes or on the ocean in speedboats. It's easy to see Bond as a blockbuster. It's hard to see Bond when he was being built brick by brick, sentence by sentence. Here's the opening of the first book, Casino Royale. Quote, The scent and smoke and sweat of a casino are nauseating at three in the morning. Then the soul erosion produced by high gambling, a compost of greed and fear and nervous tension, becomes unbearable, and the senses awake and revolt from it. End quote. We look at this and other passages and see the hallmarks of Fleming's writing. The journalist's eye and ear and commitment to conveying information precisely and efficiently. No adverbs, his newspaper editors used to demand. Very few adjectives were permitted. Get the point across in short and simple sentences. No semicolons. If you can't get your point across in a sentence, stop, add a period, and start a fresh one. To this, Fleming added his own personality, of course. Women, he liked women, liked having sex, had a taste for the rough stuff. I loved being whipped by you. Anne wrote to him early in their relationship after a secret fling in Dublin. Fleming drank like a fish, like the Americans, he would say, with vodka martinis or very brown whiskey sodas or strong gin. He smoked like a chimney. After he felt the heart disease he called the iron crab in his chest, he managed to cut down to 50 cigarettes a day. His body didn't last forever. The daily bottle of gin and packs of cigarettes, packs, plural, did him in, and his heart gave out at 56, ending his late-life streak of one Bond book a year at 11 novels and a couple of short story collections. One quick thing about his death. His mother had died a few weeks before. His mother, who had steered his career at every turn. His mother, whom he called M. We said Fleming added his personality to the books. He also added a kind of tone that's hard to replicate. He's a snob. We'll talk about that. And he's a fabulist. All this is fiction. But he's rooted in the actual, and his snobbery is one he invites us to participate in, sort of. He seems to say, Reader, I get it. You're not, on, you're not quite on the level of James and me. We're up here above you but you're going to have fun watching what we do. We don't want to know James Bond, Kingsley Amos said. We want to be James Bond. 
And part of this comes from one of Fleming's manifesto points, how to make the characters and plot believable. So let's talk about that. I have no message for suffering humanity, he said in his 1963 article, How to Write a Thriller. And although, quote, I was bullied at school and lost my virginity, I have never been tempted to foist these and other harrowing personal experiences on the public, end quote. He said he didn't want to change people or make them go out and do something. The books are written, he said, for warm-blooded heterosexuals in railway trains, airplanes, and beds. In other words, sophisticated thrillers, not literature with a capital L. He said, quote, I write unashamedly for pleasure and money, end quote. At the same time, he believed that there was a pedigree in what he was doing. Dashiell Hammett, Edgar Allan Poe, Raymond Chandler, Eric Ambler, and Graham Greene. Nothing wrong with aiming as high as these, he said. There's no shame in this. So, how do you go about it? You set standards for yourself, not long descriptions to impress the reader with your vocabulary and prose style or show how much you know, not deep psychological insights. This isn't Proust. You write with unmannered prose style, unexceptional grammar, and a certain integrity in the narrative. Above all, he served one master. You have to get the reader to turn over the page. That's the one common thread to every bestseller, Fleming pointed out. Readers must want to keep going, need to keep going. It might be easier to see, from a writer's perspective, it might be easier to see why they stop. Long passages describing things, complicated names or relationships or journeys, maddening recaps, lists of unimportant things. He says, by all means, set the scene or enumerate the heroine's measurements as lovingly as you wish. But in doing so, each word must tell and interest or titillate the reader before the action hurries on. The reader must never stop to say, where am I? Who is this person? What the hell are they all doing? Keep things understandable. Keep them moving and root them in actual detail. That's what's interesting here. That's what gives his snobbery its special blend of insider knowingness and elevation above the common reader, but also an invitation to participate to the wannabe reader. Fleming recognized that there was a danger a potential danger in thrillers, which is that readers might say, well, this would never really happen. This doomsday machine, this bizarre plot, this crazy dialogue, women who jump into bed with the main character at the drop of a hat. He says, okay, got it. Here's what you do to avoid that danger. You keep things moving. The reader will be so busy turning pages that he or she won't have time to feel hoaxed. It's too much fun to just keep going. And secondly, the second strategy to keep plausibility afloat, even when much of the book is implausible, he said, quote, the constant use of household names and objects which reassure him, the reader, that he and the writer have still got their feet on the ground. This is where the real names of things come in useful, end quote. And then Fleming lists the items that he uses, examples of this in action. He says, a Ronson lighter, the 4.5 liter Bentley with an Amherst Villiers supercharger, the Ritz Hotel in London, the 21 Club in New York, the exact names of flora and fauna, even James Bond's Sea Island cotton shirts with short sleeves. 
end quote. Let's pause there for a moment. The funny thing about that list is those are not household names and objects at all. I don't think. When's the last time you fired up your 4.5 liter Bentley with or without an Amherst Villiers supercharger? I've been to casinos. The ones I've been to are a lot more depressing in Windsor, Ontario than they are in Fleming's world. So that's the kind of snobbery that I'm talking about. It's beluga caviar and champagnes that I've never tasted and places I've maybe visited, but in the youth hostel instead of the five-star hotel. Fleming used this tactic to ground the reader, to make the fanciful plots seem believable or at least to distract from how implausible they actually were. But he was living a life so upper crust, it ended up turning into snobbery. Critics noticed this right away. Sex, snobbery, and sadism, a famous review wrote after three or four of the books had come out. But like I said, it's sort of a participatory snobbery. Apart from the Bentley, there's something to aspire to in that list that I gave you. I don't ride first class on the train, but I am on the train. Your dad might not be flying in a private jet somewhere, but you might be able to get him a nice shirt for his birthday. And even if you splurge, it might be a Sea Island cotton shirt or one of the other ones that James Bond wore. Maybe you could get him a Ronson lighter if he smokes, or at least he could smoke the same kind of cigarette that James Bond does. It's close enough to imagine it, anyway. Much of Bond is not ours, but at least within reach. Fleming said, Why do British books always have characters drinking tea and glasses of beer? When they eat, we don't hear what they ate. Aren't these thrillers? Shouldn't they be thrilling? Where's the thrill in saying he ate lunch? There's a thrill in saying what he ate specifically. Fleming copied out menus from restaurants so he could note specifically what Bond ate when he went there. And yet, Fleming was not into food and winesmanship. The arcane knowledge that we see in the films where we're in the stereotypes of James Bond, the spoofs and satires where someone might suggest a wine from 1932 and the James Bond character will say, no, make it 1928 after the rains, or whatever. That's not Fleming. I'm not a gourmet, he said. I abhor food and winesmanship. My favorite food is scrambled eggs. He himself ate scrambled eggs every day before he wrote the Bond books, and he put scrambled eggs into his books so often that an astute reader at one point pointed out that anyone trying to catch Bond would just go to all the restaurants in his city and ask if anyone there had recently ordered scrambled eggs. They could probably track him down. It's not such good spycraft for Bond to eat so many scrambled eggs. And so Ian Fleming went back through the manuscript and changed them. Even so, listen to how Fleming thinks through what Bond would likely order and the effect that that would have on the reader. He says, quote, It must surely be more stimulating to the reader's senses if, instead of writing, he made a hurried meal off the plat du jour, excellent cottage pie and vegetables, followed by homemade trifle. I think this is a fair English menu without burlesque. You write, Being instinctively mistrustful of all plats du jour, he ordered four fried eggs cooked on both sides, hot buttered toast, and a large cup of black coffee. No difference in price here, but the following points should be noted. Firstly, we all prefer breakfast foods to the sort of food one usually gets at luncheon and dinner. Secondly, this is an independent character who knows what he wants and gets it. Thirdly, 
four fried eggs has the sound of a real man's meal, and in our imagination, a large cup of black coffee sits well on our taste buds after the rich buttery sound of the fried eggs and the hot buttered toast. End quote. You see what he's saying there? He's not saying you need fancy meals. You don't need a character ordering something impossibly remote or expensive in order to make the order thrilling. Ordering breakfast food at dinner can do it. You can make your character lean, hungry, decisive, and satisfied. Why? Because your reader is probably soft, probably doesn't always get what he or she wants. Your reader is probably a little vague in life and dissatisfied. I aim at a certain disciplined exoticism, Fleming said. I think you will find that the sun is always shining in my books, a state of affairs which minutely lifts the spirit of the English reader. Exotic locales are interesting and pleasurable. They take the reader to exciting places around the world. And the women, too, the sex, the drink, the food, the locations, all that contrasts with the grimness of Bond's sometimes distasteful tasks. Killing and fights and torture and so on. Those are thrilling, but dark and dour. Sunshine, food, sex, all that is thrilling and light, lighthearted. Fleming said, I write what interests me and pleases me. It pleased the public, too. His wife and her friends scoffed at these books. He overheard them reading aloud the galleys to Casino Royale and laughing. Critics came along to say, my God, look at what's in here. Bond casts aside women as if they're Kleenex. He treats the world as if the British Empire is still correct in spirit, even if he acknowledges the reality that the empire is fading. He's basically racist. His plots are a joke. He can't write a villain, which Fleming himself acknowledged. He had a hard time writing a good, solid villain, he said. His villains were cartoons. In the end, that didn't matter. The James Bond books succeeded as thrillers because Fleming never forgot what an adolescent finds thrilling. The James Bond books failed as literature because Fleming never really grew up. But he was the right person at the right time for these books. He knew all these fantastical stories from World War II and the Cold War, and Fleming fans have traced almost everything in the Bond books back to something real that happened or almost happened in Fleming's life. In 1941, for example, Fleming was sent to a casino in Lisbon that was well known for having German secret agents who loved to gamble. He himself developed the idea that he should sit down and gamble against them, that if he could win, he would help win the war by reducing the funds available to these spies. Instead, they cleaned him out. They won that particular battle, but of course, four years later, they lost the war. Fleming lost that night, but he was the big winner in the end. They had his 50 pounds in travel money, but he had an experience he could parlay into a billion-dollar book-and-movie franchise. Ian Fleming's wife and her sophisticated friends laughed at his crude new book, but the last laugh was his. Thank you.
Okay, there we go. I hope you enjoyed that double look at some double agents. We were glad to bring it to you, and hopefully this puts us over the top in Jamaica. We would love to be number one in that country and report those results to you. No offense to Croatia, Norway, Lithuania, and what am I forgetting? Algeria, and oh yes, the Bahamas, where we were number one. There you go, Jamaica. A quick flight over Cuba. Try not to get shot down or maybe zip there on your speedboat. Try not to get attacked by the crew who has no doubt been planted there by your arch nemesis. You have a world to save and sex to have. Hey, we don't need to get rid of everything that's fun about Bond. We can just update him. We'll lose the racist bits. We'll add consent and mutual respect to all the Sexual encounters will get rid of any homophobia. There's no real loss to scissoring out all of that. We still get the action, the beautiful people, the fashion, the wild schemes, the cool gadgets. The feeling of riding along while our spy dude and his colleagues escape danger and save the day. Sure, it's adolescent, but at least it's grown-ups who aren't wearing their underwear. Okay, superhero costumes. Give me tuxedos and lingerie and nudity, tastefully done, of course, over a character dressed up like a spider or a bat any day. Punches and fast cars over super breath and x-ray vision and radioactive misadventures that give one superpowers. And rant. Start... What do you start after you end your rant? People don't start anything, do they? Start apology? Start generous words of kindness? Start selfless praise of others? No, of course not, because we're so selfish and needy and egocentric that we think our rants are worth everyone's time, and when they're over, there's no need for us to say anything else. We rant, and then we end rant, and we mic drop. We've said our piece, and you just absorb it and be thankful. You plebes. That's what we do, isn't it? End rant. Start well, let's do something new. End rant. Start the new Jack Wilson way. Start kindness. I do thank you for joining me, dear listeners. You are the best. End rant. Start Jack. Except we're at the end. <laughs> the music's running out. End rant. Start end. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.